Every year, on the 18th of April, at 5.12 a.m., citizens of San Francisco gather at the foot of a fountain placed at the intersection of Kearney, Market, 3rd, and Geary Streets. They gather to remember those lost in the 1906 earthquake that killed over 3,000 people. The fountain is tall, a bright orangey-red metal structure with a glass globe on top, neatly placed on its own little patch of brick. On the fountain is a plaque commemorating the tragedy and the annual meetups of the survivors, as well as a dedication to Luisa Tetrazzini, who in 1910 gave a stirring performance of the fountain on Christmas Eve after being barred from performing on stage. But the fountain itself is known as Lotta's Fountain, named for the woman who had it commissioned in 1875, a dedication to the city that had launched her career. She was one of the original American child stars, the highest paid actress of her day, an ingenue and a scandal wrapped in a red-gold ribbon. Eternally youthful, occasionally eccentric, and eminently talented, Lotta Crabtree took the Wild West by storm in the California Gold Rush, and her star only rose from there. But before all that, she was Charlotte Mignon Crabtree. I'm not here for the grand schemes, and now neither are you. Welcome to the second season of Little Slights, where I discuss the women who lived and died in the shadows cast by history's limelight. Let's talk about the nation's darling. For all that she would come to represent the budding glamour of the West Coast, Charlotte Crabtree was a product of the East. She was born in New York City on November 7, 1847, to John Ashworth and Marianne Livesey Crabtree. Her father worked as a bookseller in the city, but when he heard about a little gold rush happening out west, he decided that he must seek his fortunes out in California, and left for the new territory in 1851. The California gold rush had begun in 1848, when James Marshall had found gold at Sutter's Mill in Coloma, California. News spread like wildfire, and soon hordes of young hopefuls and older adventurers flocked to the mines of California. Charlotte's father was one of 300,000 who went hunting. Marianne and her daughter Charlotte, barely five, would follow him in 1852, booking passage on a boat to Panama, then crossing over the land, the canal having not been built yet, before hopping another ride up to the dock near where John Crabtree had settled, in a boomtown named Grass Valley. But John Crabtree was not there to greet them. Lotta and her father would never be close in her life, and for good reason. John Crabtree was a bit of a disaster. But where her husband failed, Mary Ann always found a way. She and Lotta found temporary lodging with a group of entertainers, and Marianne wiggled Lotta into a few dance lessons while they waited. Lotta, from all accounts, had a natural gift from performing, but perhaps here was first planted a seed for the genuine passion she would have for her craft as she grew. But the home was temporary, and soon the Crabtrees were reunited in Grass Valley, where John worked at the gold mines and Marianne ran a boarding house. Situated closely to the Crabtree's house was the home of a mysterious, glamorous woman, shrouded in scandal and whispers. Her name was Lola Montez, born Eliza Rosanna Gilbert, an Irish-born dancer who had been advertised as a Spanish entertainer in London, hence the name. She was in America rehabilitating her image after being chased out of Europe, due to her unpopularity as King Ludwig I of Bavaria's mistress. Her efforts bore fruit, and she was a sensation in San Francisco. But at the time of her meeting with the Crabtrees, she was either recently married to newspaperman Patrick Hull, or had already gone through their very messy divorce. So she was lying a bit low. Marianne Crabtree was either unaware or uncaring of the gossip surrounding Lola Montez, 
or perhaps she saw the obvious opportunity. She befriended the woman, introducing her to her daughter Charlotte, a bright-eyed, loud-mouthed little girl with a head of eye-catching red-gold hair and a flair for the dramatic. Lola took the young Lada under her wing, encouraging her interest in performing and taking her on as a private pupil, teaching her ballads and dances, as well as how to ride a horse. Lola's interest in Lada was apparently so keen she asked Marianne permission to take Lada touring with her when she was set to visit Australia, but Marianne said no. She had other plans for Lada. Lola Montez's interest in Lada proved something that Marianne already had a suspicion of, that Lada had true talent and that people wanted to see her perform. She wasn't just going to shuttle her daughter off to some foreign country to get lost in the shuffle. No, she would build Lada up there in California before they aimed for world domination. Marianne had Lada enrolled in more dance classes and began to have her tutored in singing and playing instruments. For her part, Lada appeared to truly love performing, though, as is the case with all child performers, how genuine a love can be when it is tied into the affection of both parent and strangers is hard to estimate. But from the start, she showed a vivacious energy, a lovable scamp on stage with very little in the way of true technique, but an undeniable gift for real, natural performances and improvisation. That she was and remained for all her life a very pretty girl didn't hurt either. Her first true test came when the Crabtree family moved to Rabbit Creek, north of Grass Valley. There was a tavern there, and the story goes that a theater owner there by the name of Mart Taylor needed a young child actress in his troupe to compete with a rival who already had a little starlet of his own. And who should appear but Lotta Crabtree, ready to dazzle? Between Taylor and Mary Ann, they taught Lotta Irish jigs and reels that would appeal to the mostly Irish population of Rabbit Creek. And that night, she was as step-perfect and enchanting as Taylor could have wished for. The audience showered Lotta with applause and gold, something that frightened the little girl before she recognized it for the praise it was. Meanwhile, her mother swept the floor, making sure to grab up every spare nugget, peso, and dollar there was. That first performance was soon repeated in mining camps all over California. Lotta would emerge on stage or in taverns, Mark Taylor accompanying her on his guitar while her mother played a triangle, and Lotta would dazzle with a reel or stagger with a ballad. The prophets would come raining, and Marianne would collect the gold. Soon, Lotta and her mother would extend her reach to Nevada, which was experiencing its own boom in the form of the Silver Rush. Lotta was a hit with the mining crowd, but now it was time to get her bona fides. That meant real stages, and that meant the Crabtrees, more specifically Marianne and Lotta, and by this point her little brothers, had to head to the city. They moved to San Francisco in 1856. There, Lotta caught the eye of Rowena Granice Steele, author, journalist, and performer. Steele invited Lotta to join her theater, the Gaiety's Temple of Mirth and Song, which she had just established that year. Lotta was an instant sensation both on the San Francisco scene and in the touring circuit she still frequented, and in three years had surpassed being just little Charlotte Crabtree and had become Miss Lotta, the San Francisco favorite. Interestingly, it's said that as a young teen, Lotta would occasionally suffer stage fright before she had to go up on stage, although she was as sure-foot and clever as ever once she appeared. The stage was likely a different environment than the taverns and saloons she had performed in before, and might have made her uncomfortable, but for its drawbacks, it had its perks. Lotta was frequently typecast as the scamp, the rogue, or the innocent ingenue, but it was in San Francisco that she got to try her hand at dramas for the first time beyond the sentimental ballads she had played to audiences before. 
Lotta crafted a unique, personal relationship with her audiences, whether quietly strumming her banjo or leaping about, and she gained a dedicated following in San Francisco. As seems to be the case, with every child actress comes the management masquerading as a parental unit. Marianne Crabtree was the prototypical momager, in charge of Lotta's appearances, her schedule, and most importantly, her finances. And as time passed, there was a lot of finance to be managed. Lotta would perform, and Marianne would collect the gold, sweeping it all into large leather bags. When the golden dollars grew too heavy and numerous for the bags, she switched to steamer trunks. And when the golden dollars grew too much for those, Marianne began investing in real estate in California in Lotta's name. By the time Lotta Crabtree reached adulthood, she would have an impressive amount of land and property to her name, and she would continue to invest as her mother did for the rest of her life. By early 1863, Lotta Crabtree was 16, and much too big for California. Lotta had always been impish, funny, and clever, if borderline impetuous, but her true personality was beginning to emerge and settle. It was at that age that Lotta would develop her fondness for fancy cigars and dresses that were just a bit too short for society. It was also at this age that Lotta chose to leave the West Coast and travel to New York City, to conquer Broadway and beyond. There, her star began to truly rise nationally with her performances in plays such as Uncle Tom's Cabin and an adaptation of Charles Dickens' The Old Curiosity Shop made just for her by John Broham called Little Nell and the Marchioness. She was a starlet on the rise almost from the moment she arrived, helping to establish the ingenue plays at theaters, or girl plays. By 20, she was so popular that she had inspired two dance crazes across the country, the Lotta Polka and the Lotta Gallop, and she had earned herself the title of the nation's darling. But Lotta didn't confine herself to the roles meant for darlings. As theater expert Professor David S. Shield noted, she was impatient with simply being a pretty thing, and strove to impersonate all sorts of feminine types while still a teenager. She hardly ever chose to be the romantic lead, choosing instead the parts of the lovable rogues or the sneaky old biddy. Lotta loved to be the comedian of a show. She also chased after trouser roles, or male characters meant to be played by women. And she had a fondness for playing with a variety of voices and gestures and makeup, anything to switch it up. Lotta had a gift for impersonation that, according to Dr. Shield, would not be seen again in America until silent film star Lon Chaney entered the scene 40 years after her peak. Young Lotta Crabtree never settled. Not in a type, and not at a permanent residence, either. Lotta and Marianne had settled into a Fifth Avenue apartment in New York City, but they toured extensively, and Lotta loved being on the road. In 1875, Lotta formed her own company to travel with her, and they toured the nation to roaring success. By the dawn of the 80s, Lotta Crabtree was the highest-paid actress in America, regularly pulling in around $5,000 a week, which in today's money is a purchasing power of around $136,000. Lotta funded her company, supported local charities on the East Coast, and bought a lot of horses, which she loved to put funny hats on when they rode in the streets. In the early 1880s, Lotta finally took herself and her family abroad, traveling to Europe to tour there. Her response in Britain was quite different from what she received in America. In her homeland, Lotta was authentic and funny, but overseas, her mannerisms seemed maybe a bit too garish and bawdy. British audiences even hissed at one of her performances of Musette, which is one of her stronger plays. Lotta trucked on, though, playing in a number of dramas. 
In the meantime, she toured museums, learned French, and took up painting, a hobby she would continue working at for the rest of her life. And however cold England might have been to her, San Francisco more than made up for it when they welcomed her home at the end of the tour, where she reprised her role in Little Nell and the Marchioness. But at that time, she had mostly settled on the East Coast with her mother, who in 1885 had a house built at the resort bubbling up around Lake Hapakkong in New Jersey, an 18-bedroom mansion named Atoll Trist. Atoll, for the record, is just Lotta spelled backwards. There, Lotta settled into her version of a high-society life, hosting parties and buying more and more horses, smoking cigars and wearing pants that scandalized the upper-class ladies, and painting whenever she had the time. Lotta was now in her late 30s, approaching 40. She continued to seek roles that would allow her to show many faces, sometimes all at the same time, like her role in The Little Detective, where she played a crone, a child, and a man all in one go. But forever a trickster at heart, she more and more returned to the roles of her youth, going back to frolicking as the innocent teenage sweetheart on stage. It still worked for her. There was a strange childlike innocence that would always be her style, according to biographer David Dimsey a sort of beauty that came from within, all that joie de vivre bursting out from her tiny body to dazzle all who witnessed her. That all came to an abrupt end in May of 1889. While performing in Wilmington, Delaware, Lotta suffered a nasty fall on stage that would put her out of commission for nearly two years. She was 42 at the time of her injury. She recuperated in New Jersey and attempted to come back in 1841, but retired soon after, at age 45. No farewell tour, no fond goodbyes. Lotta Crabtree was out of the game, rich, successful, and beloved. What did the life of the richest actress in America look like in retirement? Of note about Lotta is that, though rumors abounded, she never married nor had any particularly strong romantic attachments. Some thought this was because of her mother Marianne, not wanting any man to distract Lotta from her career. Perhaps Lotta herself found her schedule too consuming or perhaps she had no interest in marriage at all. The closest example she had was her parents, and although it had produced herself and her brothers, whom Lotta adored, the Crabtree union was no storybook fairy tale. John Crabtree was rumored to have become an alcoholic, and Lotta certainly kept him at a distance. Regardless, Lotta seemed content with her mother, brothers, and horses. Mary Ann Crabtree died in 1905, however, leaving Lotta bereft of her lifelong companion and manager. Lotta left Lake Patcong, their perennial residence, permanently, and began traveling more, making her way to Paris to study painting in 1912. At home, she gave generously to local charities, investing in real estate and horses. Lotta Crabtree's last appearance was in 1915 in San Francisco, for what else but Lotta Crabtree Day, at the Panama Pacific Exposition. Perhaps while there, she visited that fountain she had placed at the busy intersection. It had not yet become the designated meeting spot for survivors of the 1906 earthquake, and would not for four more years. But her little fountain had already seen its share of history, just like her. Lotta greeted the city that loved her, and they greeted her as well. And then star and city separated for good. Lotta went back east, buying up property near Quincy, Massachusetts, where her horses and her sickly younger brother Ashworth could thrive, as well as a hotel in Boston where she lived alone. Stories said you could see Miss Lotta out on the shore sometimes, cigar puffing away as she painted the sea. 
Lotta Crabtree died at the age of 76 on September 25, 1924 in Boston from unknown causes. The New York Times mourned the loss of the nation's eternal child and its former Belle of Broadway. She was, presumably, survived by her brothers, who interred her next to her mother in Woodlawn Cemetery in Bronx, New York. Lotta left a trust of $4 million to be given to aging actors, veterans, and animals in need that is still active today, as well as a fund for released convicts that still gives annual grants in Massachusetts. It's hard to conceive of the level of fame and popularity Lotta Crabtree reached in an age with no phones, no TVs, not even radios, just positive word of mouth and sheer magnetism. She was, in every sense, the nation's darling. Welcomed at every city, no matter how threadbare her plays were, because the people loved and wanted to see her. And she loved and wanted to perform for them. Lotta was a multifaceted woman. Serious, sympathetic, funny, with no shortage of eccentricities for a lady in her time. And that realness came through in her varied and myriad performances. At turns coquettish, mischievous, comedic, and heart-wrenching, Lotta Crabtree had a true passion for the stage that reached into the hearts of her audiences and begged them to come along with her, no matter what the ride was. And they went eagerly. 